What is up, everybody? This is the TMI Podcast. We have Isaac and Josh. And today we're going to be discussing, or basing our discussion on an article from a uh, Neil A. Maxwell Institute religious scholar named David Calibro. We wrote a really interesting article about how about alternative options for understanding the meaning and intention of the first chapters of Genesis, which in all kinds of dialogue and in understanding the Bible and reconciling religion with science, these are some of the most difficult, controversial, um, decisive chapters in the Bible. And so discussing how they can be understood is, is important and it's not obvious. It's not automatic. It, it's maybe not what we think at first. And so it's, it's worth discussing. It absolutely is worth discussing. We're going to hopefully start from some simpler questions that maybe have more obvious answers to the more complex questions. So I'm going to start off. Josh, uh, how can you believe in God and also believe that the universe was not created in seven days, according to the Genesis account? Right. Well, the seven days alone, there are many different options for how to understand that. Um, Because a day is defined as a revolution of the earth on its axis. Right, and then a year is a, is a revolution of the earth around the sun, and um, we're we're using this word day before God has even created the earth or the sun. So what what is a day? At least for the first couple of days of creation, what does a day even mean? It's a completely nonsensical term, and so it has to be some. I think the seven twenty four hour day interpretation goes out the window like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other options some people have proposed, like in the New Testament. Um, I think it's Peter who says that a, a year or a day for us is like a thousand years to God. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, backwards. A day for God is a thousand years for us. Right. Um, other options are that they're not even equal, that they're not seven symmetric um, you know, days of creation, that one could be longer, one could be shorter, that they're general creative periods. Um, those are all options, and I think I think they're valid. But... I, the reason I don't think that God necessarily created the created the earth in seven days, in seven twenty-four hour periods or, or seven years, I don't go for the seven year interpretation either or seven thousand year interpretation either because because of evolution and other things in the age of the earth. Geological would be very problematic if if the earth was only six thousand plus seven thousand years old, mm-hmm. right? So, but what what um, what David Calibro discusses in this article is an, is an alternative way to understand. The first two chapters of Genesis, which is to understand them as a ritual text, mm-hmm. to understand them as, as as kind of a guide, a narrative guide to what would be a ritual enactment in in ancient temples. And members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints also know that we, we have this ritual enactment in our modern temples. Right. And, and what's really interesting and what should get us from the outset to question the on-the-face scientific literality of these chapters or understanding them in such a way is the fact that Genesis 1 and 2 offer different sequential accounts of the Mm -hmm. creation, which in turn is different from the LDS Pearl of Great Price account, which has two versions, Abraham and Moses, which in turn are all different slightly from the temple account. And um, David Calibro has some really interesting reasons for why this might be. For example... Um, Genesis 1 and 2 differ from each other dramatically, and this has actually led to something called the documentary hypothesis, which is, uh, I forget the, the scholar's name now, it was a German scholar who came up with it. Um, 
And the idea is that Genesis 1 through it's like verse chapter 2, verse 4, part A, like first half of the verse or something like that, was written by one author. And then the second chapter all the way through like Genesis 4 or something is written by a second author. And, the, and, and there's lots of evidence f- for this. For example, in the Hebrew, you have Yahweh, chapter 1, Jehovah Yahweh in chapter 2, two different names for God. You have different verbs for to create. You have first person versus third person perspectives in the two chapters, and you also have different sequential creation. And one reason that Genesis 2 might be um, different, and you begin with man created, and you begin with the animal creation, or it's earlier, and you see the animals coming to Adam to be named, as opposed to Adam is made after all the animals, Mm -hmm. you know. He suggests that one reason for this is because um, they begin inside the temple, and and it's only natural to begin with the the participant in the ritual, who is the human, right. having been created first, and then they progress outside the temple. So so the account is modeled after the physical temple of Solomon, and they progress outside the temple to where they had the the sacrif- sacrificial altar, and that's when the animals come in, and and, and they're so. It's, it's an option to understand the chapters this way. And, and even if you're not going to go for the temple approach, most people think that they were written by two different authors, mm-hmm. that they're, they're two different sources. Um, some people think that one is pre-exilic and one is post-exilic. One is written by a priestly source, mm-hmm. and one is written by what they call the, it's just called the Jehovah source, and that's the chapter 2. And so one is before the Babylonian, Babylonian exile and one's after. So... Long story short, um, right there, I don't believe that God created the earth in seven days because I don't think that's what Genesis is trying to tell us. Mm-hmm. I think I don't. I don't really think I know anything about how or how long it took for God to create the earth, mm-hmm. because I don't think the purpose of the scriptures is to tell us how or when, um, so much as as who and why, mm-hmm. who created, who is the creator, and why the creation. Right and. Um, it's just simply not my understanding of the intention of Scripture, especially not Old Testament Scripture, before the scientific revolution, when they really thought about everything differently. Right. Genealogies were not literal. Language was not literal. I mean, everything was allegorical. They talked about... Um, I mean, you could fudge dates because of symbolic numbers, so everything's got to be 7 or 40. Mm-hmm. And... We've got two different genealogies for Jesus because they're not actually genealogies. They're telling us stories about him, their claims about him and about his um, his calling. So basically, if we understand the theme of the book, the genre of the book, right. you know, I would not interpret... Um, I, I think the Divine Comedy is an amazingly insightful book, but I don't take it literally as in like this is exactly how hell is divided up this is exactly how heaven is divided up um i don't literally believe that virgil is going to be the guiding angel in heaven Mm -hmm. you know um so but if i misunderstood that as a scientific account or as a um literal scriptural account of someone's journey through heaven and hell i would totally miss the point right that's true of any work of fiction and if you misinterpret history as fiction, then you're also going to miss the point. So, I'm not saying there's nothing historical in the in the Bible, but I think it's a, it's a library of many different types of books and many different genres. Right. Okay, so that's kind of like 
uh, a beautiful breath of fresh air and a sigh of relief because you realize there isn't dissonance in, in the initial question I asked you about the creation, specifically the mechanics of the creation. It seems like, well, there isn't really dissonance here. And I, I really think that attitude is becoming the most prevalent Christian attitude, uh, especially among the younger generation, you know? And that has bothered people in the past. I'm not even going to speculate why, uh, but all I would say is if I was given the scientific resources and background and cultural interpretation of the Bible that they were in years past, I probably would have thought a very similar thing. And I also would have been kind of disturbed. Uh, but that would have, well, just like what you concluded, would have been a, a, a falsifiable dissonance. It's not a dissonance at all. There's mm-hmm. no con- contradiction. And let me just throw out here, this isn't, this isn't only kind of a new, I mean, it's not that new. It's just that um, in conservative Christian churches, people haven't really explored the options here for a long time. But this isn't only a new answer to this question. It's a new answer to a very new question. Mm -hmm. This hasn't been kind of the existential crisis that it is for many today. It's a recent development. It hasn't been that way. That's not, there's no reason to suggest that that's how the original audience of the Old or New Testaments thought of their scripture Mm -hmm. or Christians during most of the 2,000 years after Christ. it's, it's a development and a consequence of the scientific revolution and our way of thinking of everything in these strict scientific, historiological, chronological terms where truth is, is what you can find in the crust of the earth and, and in the chemical nature of things. And it's our empirical senses. <clears throat> whereas in the past, a, an analogy could be true, mm-hmm. right? A, a metaphor could be true, an epic could be true because it teaches true principles. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't change the fact that they're mythological. Right. That they're not, you know, um, that perhaps Job or Jonah are not actual historical characters, but that they're intended to teach us something. Right. But this does introduce additional complications, and that's one reason why people have shied away from it in the past. It's An extreme is always easier than anything between. Mm-hmm. It's always seemingly more consistent and simpler because I always know what the answer is going to be. Um, whereas it, now I have to kind of parse, and that's hard, and that requires additional study, and I have to decide why am I justified in thinking that um, Jonah, Job, are probably allegorical characters in my personal opinion, but Isaiah was not, right? Or Adam was not, although. Mm-hmm. Adam is in kind of a unique position as well as what what we mean by Adam. Do right. I mean the first humanoid ever? Do I do I mean something else by Adam? It being a, an actual historical yeah. character. I would like to talk about this. <clears throat> the humanoid I, thing. The humanoid thing. So uh, the fall bothered me a lot, and I came to a similar conclusion in my faith journey. Of there's no really dissonance here. I mean. There's no way that I have to believe that these specific scientific credentials tie down my belief in faith, and it didn't bother mm-hmm. me. But uh, uh, the creation, the fall, and the redemption are three critical parts of a plan of salvation that are essentially non-negotiable. Uh, a resurrection, for example, is a non-negotiable part. And uh, Paul talks about, I mean, and you can't even begin to understand a redemption without a fall. And so you need a proper under, uh, understanding of the fall. 
And this is where things get a little bit more dicey because then I think, well, I've cast away the historical accuracies of some of the parts of the Bible. And I get into, I think I get into a trap of me being the, the main critic of scripture, you know, like if this makes sense with the scientific and historical evidence that it really happened, and if it wasn't, then it's uh, theological musings. And, you know, they all represent some metaphorical truth, maybe, but only some of them are really true. And then when you apply, this is theoretically true to Adam and Eve, and any type of fall behavior that happens, then you have also eliminated the need for a real savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's totally crucial. Right. You know, so much turns on, on Adam and Eve and, and also on this question of the creation. And I wouldn't say it hinges on everything. So let me tell you what aspects I've found to be critical and which ones I've felt really comfortable tossing away. For example, I, uh, I'm very comfortable with the idea of human evolution. And I feel like we have, while non-complete... I mean, to, to ask for a complete record of anything in science is kind of a ridiculous thing to ask. So you always piece together various pieces of evidence. But I think we have enough evidence to suggest uh, humanity started somewhere in Africa and that humanoid species have been around for a really long time, millions and millions of years, uh, and that Adam and Eve don't have to represent the first primates or the first people who ascended to some type of humanoid figure. And I, I even think that is understandable. Uh, how I would understand it is that Adam and Eve are the first people who make a covenant with God and begin a, co- a covenant seed, a covenant family. And if it qualifies with those credentials, I think it's totally passable. Uh, the idea of spirits, for example, uh, when do humans get spirits? Well, I'm under the impression that all beings... Even all animals have spirits as well. And I just think that spirits aren't all created uh, with the same capacities. Just like there's greater intelligences gather, I I think that humans have a type of intelligence that other animals don't have. And Mm -hmm. I would even probably say humans have varying degrees of intelligences among ourselves. Well, Uh, that's totally in line with a lot of church ideas and doctrines, such as the idea of eternal progression. You know, we think of this as, as, as being true going forward, but why not true going backwards? Beginning, perhaps, even with very basic life forms. Right. Um, and, and there are other, you know, evolution in particular is a question where there are just a lot of questions, but also a lot of options. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm going to back up to basic life forms, I can still be a, a special creationist and think that God put everything in these certain initial conditions where it would inevitably evolve right or yeah evolve such that man resulted and and when man was sufficiently developed maybe adam is the first to make a covenant with god right. maybe he maybe that's the same thing as or maybe he's also the first spirit child of god mm-hmm. the first child of god as opposed to creation mm-hmm. of god and and that he's the first of the spirit children to be embodied mm-hmm. and that's because he was the humanoid was progressed to a point he had, where he could covenant with right. god where he had that intelligence right. and, and and so there there are going to be initial i mean i've gone through i had this whole journey i used to be a very you know kind of like a strict constructionist kind mm-hmm. of thing of, of scripture where it was like it, it's got to be what it means on its face and if a general authority has interpreted it in a certain way then that's how it is. Um, 
<clears throat> and I think if you if you look at like maybe I have like an initial gut reaction like well that can't be mm-hmm. or but that messes up so many things. Well, think about what are these other things they mess up, and are they also based on perhaps unjustified presuppositions? For example, one of the one of the go-to questions with with evolution is this idea that Adam and Eve could not have had children before the fall. Right. That that was one of the primary purposes of the fall was to enable them to, to procreate and right. to have a family. And we're told this in Second Nephi 2 in the Book of Mormon, for example. Nephi, or Lehi in verse 23 says, If they had not fallen, well, if Adam had not tra- transgressed, he would not have fallen. And they would have had no children. And, and then there's also this idea that if there's no children, then nothing in creation is procreating, and therefore nothing, and there's no dying. And if things are not procreating and dying, regardless of how much time you have, you can't have evolution. Right. But there are options. We, we just don't ever assume that there's not an option, really. Like, there, there's some evidence to suggest that the flood was local. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also some evidence to suggest that the... The fall was, in some sense, universal, but perhaps the conditions prevailing in the Garden of Eden were local. Why does God have to specify that he placed a garden eastward in, in Eden? Why is that necessary? Mm-hmm. Um, and that it was some kind of bubble, almost, for the um, final stages, perhaps, of the, of the development of this humanoid or of the entering into of the covenant. Right. It was serving some special purpose. And then they're sent out into the lone and dreary world where death is, is reigning. And um, I, I think that's a little bit, I mean, it, it can kind of feel like a stretch. Um, but I think the point is that we need to look more closely at these things. And so I think, you know, evolution, humanoids, some people have suggested that, the, that these fossils, that these proto-humans have been planted by, you know, subversionists or even by Satan himself mm-hmm. to try and mislead us. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, I'm not saying he couldn't have, but I don't think there's any reason to think he did. I don't think Satan can create anything. Maybe not create, um... That's a separate question whether spirit... I mean, spirits seem to be able to have some impact on the physical world, mm-hmm. um, although perhaps only through bodies, which they possess. I, but I mean, I think Satan could deceive you into thinking that a proto-human like, was what? a human, or that he was... But I don't, I, don't, I don't even think that would be that much of a problem. Right, really. well, I, I really don't think it's a, it's a largely viable option, but, I mean, like, we see... Moses says the earth shakes when Satan gets angry, whether mm-hmm. or not that's in his head or... Right. It's a beautiful metaphor. It's beautifully right. poetic, and it makes it's a lot of sense. beautiful language either way. Um, point is, I think God is not trying to give us contradictory messages in the, in the universe he creates and in the, in the word he gives us, in the physical and in the spiritual creation, so to say. We're taught in the scriptures that they're in perfect alignment with each other. And God is the the God of science. He is the author of the universe. Mm-hmm. He is the creator of the world. And so dinosaur fossils or proto-humans or whatever else, evidence of evolution in the, in the Earth's crust, that's, a, that's another record from God. Mm-hmm. We, we read from the scriptures and we read from the pages of the Earth's crust. 
that's, that's something that James E. Talmadge, um, early apostle in the church, a very prominent scientist and also one of the strongest um, expounders of basic church doctrine. He wrote the probably the most read and most nearly canonical non-scripture book in the church, which is Jesus the Christ. Mm-hmm. But he gave a, a talk called The Earth and Man at a general conference when kind of had these questions going on about the age of the earth and such. And, and he was very explicit. You know, these are both authored by God. And prophets have since said that if, we're, if, we, if they appear to be in conflict, then we're either misunderstanding the one or the other. Mm-hmm. Because all truth is one, all truth is coherent. Um, so basic answer is, um, what, what kind of, what, what distinguishes Adam is maybe a more difficult question. But whether or not there are pre-Adamic humanoids or life forms or death before the fall and these other things, we're really just not told that in the scriptures, and Mm -hmm. therefore we we can only rely on science. And there's no reason to distrust science so long as we correctly understand what the scriptures are trying to tell us. Yeah, I think uh, the whole reason I think this is a wonderful topic is uh, to really give it thought Really see what intelligent people that you respect and admire have said about this thing and realize when does science step on religion's toes and when does it not. And every time I do a deep dive of things like this, I generally recognize that they're not stepping on each other's toes that much because science is an encounter with a certain reality. So was romanticism, I would say, right? Romanticism, you're encountering this, this deep reality that stirs up passions in you, that makes you interested in th- certain things, that helps you appreciate the nature around you, or things like that. That is a, a real tangible reality. And so is the Enlightenment, you know? Imagine looking at Statue of David. I mean, that's a real thing. What I'm looking at is a real thing. It's a marble statue. But I'm not so concerned with uh, necessarily the anatomical uh, features of it, but I'm just astounded by this work of art, and it's tapping into something real. And so I think uh, Adam and Eve teaches us, whoa, the reality that constructs the world in a, from a scientific perspective is a layer of reality without a doubt, and we are encountering it and we're living in it. But when you become a conscious being, you suddenly are made aware of types of realities that you have never yet encountered. You, as this first arising conscious and spiritual being, have encountered something interesting. Uh, I remember reading this in somewhat of a faith crisis moment, and I just loved it. Uh, Spencer W. Kimball says, in, in 1976, uh, the story of the rib, of course, is figurative. <laughs> of the rib? Of the rib. And I think he, he also said that about the fruit. And I think I know what he thought about the fruit. What he thought about what, uh, what he, he thought the fruit, the fruit represented. Because if he says it's figurative, then it represents something still. What do you think he thought the fruit uh, represented? Didn't he think the fruit represented sex? I've heard that before. I haven't heard it attributed to him. Um, people have strong ideas about that. People do have strong <laughs> ideas about that. It's a little strange. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, here's the thing. It's uh, what a, There's a lot of avenues to take here, and they're all acceptable and I'm not they're all acceptable I don't think I think when you recognize that they step on each other's toes uh, what, what I what I mean when I say this is wait a second no one's ever resurrected before so how does somebody do that and science would say I mean you have these frogs that hibernate for like a really long time 
and you have like uh, asexual reproducing organisms that like, get cut in half, and then so like that's kind of, I can kind of see. Okay, looks like biologically there's like mechanisms that allow for things to come back seemingly from the dead. There's even been records of people who like got frozen to death, for example, and have been resuscitated successfully after hours of being dead. But even then, like C.S. Lewis argues in his book Miracles that um, whatever we do have in the natural scientific record. Miracles are a bit different because they are kind of interpositions of supernature on nature. They're not things that normally occur. Many of the miracles are patterned after things that do normally occur. Like God, or I mean, Jesus doesn't just create food out of nothing. He multiplies food, right. which is a natural thing. You and know, he heals seeds, people. Seeds expand and form fruit and they multiply. Right. And he, he accelerates the natural process of bodily healing. Right. So, or at least some of the miracles are that way, and then some are, you know, resurrection right. of himself and of others is probably... A parting of the it, sea. It's actually, I think Lewis draws a distinction between those kinds of miracles. Yeah. Where some are kind of accelerations or expansions upon existing patterns, and right. some of the introduction of new patterns. Right. Um, such as the, you know, when he, the one destructive miracle that Christ ever did, where he causes the... Fig tree. Fig tree to wither. That was unique. Yeah, that, that is was. Unique. Unique. I, I suppose that was also. Well, an that's de- decomposition. Process, but but I, I see what you're saying. I think the distinction is important to draw, and <clears throat> I would say there's things are stepping on each other's toes there because you have to introduce metaphysics. There, there there's are no times way you when can't science and religion step on each other's toes. I, I think toes. there's no way you can't uh, uh, introduce metaphysics, in, in a point like that. What I say about metaphysics, for those who don't know about metaphysics, it's. Uh, a layer of physics, you could say, a layer of reality, which mm-hmm. is uh, unknowable, I should mm-hmm. say, to our in, in our current uh, status. Because I would say we have metaphysical theories for gravity, for example, thing a sticking force. We used to think that, and that's metaphysical. Now it's just physical, and uh, people people generally say, well, we just don't know everything, and so it's. Uh, the metaphysics of resurrection are just will just be physics one day, mm-hmm. a divine physics, when we really understand everything that's going on. And then you have something called naturalistic explanations of uh, uh, <clears throat> miracles. For example, Moses parted the Red Sea because there was this crazy tide event and then a seismic event, which realistically, something like that could happen, you know, and it could just happen just randomly and just been really good timing. But that's really when we're stretching, in my opinion, or... What does Peter call it? Resting the scriptures. Rest, yeah, resting. When we're trying to force something on them that's not there. Like, if we were going to insist on a strict... You know, some of the things that we continue to insist on about the literal scientificality of the scriptures mm-hmm. has to do with the fact that some things are still contested even within scientific communities. Right. Evolution really isn't there anymore. Evolution is a law mm-hmm. as, as strong as gravity as right. these other laws we have. Um, but when it was contested and contestable, I mean, people, I, I can understand why people wanted to hold to their basic assumptions until there was sufficient evidence, right. perhaps. That's but even an intellectual. Some approach. things, like if we're really going to take the full scientific approach of Genesis, we should have had to get rid of the script, you know, to totally dispose of the scriptures a long time ago. Because right. as soon as we realize that the Israelite conception of the world is, is like a flat earth, with a dome, the firmament is literally a dome held up by pillars at the ends, the pillars of heaven. Mm-hmm. 
The flood is waters from above coming in through the windows of heaven, and the stars are hanging from the ceiling of the snow globe firmament. You know, there's no justification for such a worldview anymore. And so, if we're if we're going to interpret that as what they literally mean, right, it's just not really an option. Um, I want to say something about the Adam and Eve falling through sex because it's an interesting idea. It is interesting. That it's kind of the a lot of people it's kind of their first impression. Right. It's it's like the don't want to say it, but this is what I think, kind of thing. Yeah. So I don't want it to go un- uncontested. Um, and, and so, because the the question I have just about that is, how could Eve have fallen before Adam? If this was a because a, a sex sex is an is you know intercourse. Mm-hmm. It's a simultaneous consensual act between two people. Right. And so if that was the the what precipitated the fall then they both would have fallen at exactly the same time so how could eve have and and in the narrative we have eve falling before adam and then she brings the fruit to adam you know satan tries to get adam to take the fruit first he refuses so eve takes it but how could adam refuse and eve takes it if they just do it at the same time Mm -hmm. and then eve tells adam i'm going to be cast out and you'll be stuck in the garden without me if you Mm -hmm. don't do it too doesn't sound like something simultaneous so but that is of course imposing or requiring a chronological interpretation of the narrative right so it's not automatic either it's just yeah. a perspective um well do you think there's anything sexual about the fall i i think there is i think because they covered themselves and i think that that <clears throat> says much more about shame but the context of shame and sexuality uh which i would say is actually not uniquely human we have coy animals. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's normal. It's normal to be either a promiscuous species or a non-promiscuous species. And this is actually a biological thing. But the sensation of guilt and shame associated with sexual behavior uh, is one of the many things introduced by becoming a conscious being. Of course. Who's also and I think you obviously automatic. Well, yes, obviously it has something to do with sex because... Only after the fall did they begin they to have meaningful procreative sex. Right. Right? And, but if we look closer, so much of the narrative is just like, what is really going on here? What are they trying to tell us? Like, Adam and Eve, they, they fall, but not until Satan points out to them that they're naked or mm-hmm. they're ashamed of it. But then as soon as he says it, it's like they know what being naked is and they know. Right. It's like, do you just forget? Well, I, th- I think they like, knew. I think, uh, and see, look at us. Look at us right now. This is interesting, actually, to point out. We're discussing this narrative that's a temple narrative that we kind of think is a metaphor. It's like, re- it's like poetry. But we're still sense. taking it literally. But we're still taking it literally because what's, what's going on here is I believe science touches reality. Mm-hmm. I believe it's totally I, – I love science. I want to be a scientist. I think it's beautiful. I want to devote a lot of my life to pursuing science. And I think there's other realities mm-hmm. besides the scientific one. One of them is morality. And it turns out science doesn't help me fix my moral problems. Right. And I, I can't <clears throat> use science to fix my moral problems. And that's, that's an admitted point of science. And I think a lot of uh, purely scientist ideologies would assume uh, they, just, they just are trying to do everything scientifically and uh, deterministically, and then they, they take a humanist approach, right? Mm-hmm. And the humanist approach is, well, I'm a secular humanist, so I believe everything that's reality is science, 
And in my humanist aspect, because I have to make moral decisions still, it doesn't matter, I can't live in a box and do science experiments all day. I still have to make moral decisions, so I'm going to be a humanist, which means I contribute to human flourishing. Mm -hmm. Why do you try to contribute to human flourishing? Well, and what is human flourishing? And what is human What is the good life? And who gets to decide it? And then we have, oh, here we are, you know, our moral and philosophical smoothie, and you have to drink it at some point, Uh and every time you drink it, you're going to encounter... Everyone has to, it's impossible not to adopt moral philosophy. Mm -hmm. Whatever people think is the neutral uh, non-stance is a stance in in itself. Yes, it is. And so there are things science can't tell us, and that's really where, I mean, sometimes we take religion beyond its bounds. It seems to be conflicting with science when we try to make it science. But when science didn't exist, it wasn't in conflict of anything. And we're, we're in our infancy of emerging from a society which wasn't completely based in a non-scientific ideology. We're in our infancy. I don't blame us for this. And I, I mean, there's a lot of societies, we're, we're the only first world country that's majority religious, the United States. No other, I mean, a lot of other countries are kind of taking off past this point and adopting a more purely secular mm-hmm. and humanist view. Uh, and we're hanging on to something. And I think, well, I don't even want to begin to talk about that. There's a lot of reasons right. why America so, has that. But we have to be perpetually and vigilantly, you know, we've got to be constantly aware of, of these assumptions and looking for them and looking for when they start creeping into our analyses of things. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we just went from saying that, you know, it's probably analog, uh, yeah, analogical, metaphorical, and, and, you know, didactic, intended to teach us something. Right. And then we immediately started imposing this chronological, literal interpretation right. of this discussion. So it's always coming back because it is it is simpler, you know. It's 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 easier to look at it that way if you're if you're only going to look at a very surface level, transitorily. But so when do science and religion step on each other's toes? You know, when religion exceeds its bounds and starts to try to become scientific. Right. Also, I think, and I mean, I don't want to be too dismissive either. There's a lot of things in religion that really are religious and scientific like joseph smith tells us that spirit is matter Mm -hmm. that's a scientific claim right of a kind that we can't observe right now metaphysical one yeah metaphysical claim because it's scientifically Mm non-falsifiable currently right um or we're told that when christ comes again we'll be told that all things will be revealed in this dispensation including the earth how it was made and the purpose thereof which is interesting to think that we don't even yet let me i'll pull up that verse in a second but we also see conflict when science exceeds its bounds. Right. And perhaps from evolution, although, again, this is a very natural thing, very natural and seemingly self-evident conclusions to draw, we take something like evolution and we start to draw moral conclusions from it. Right. So when science and philosophy and whatever else conflict with religion is when they they begin to make moral claims and and to tell us what is the good life when they try to tell us how to live our life when um when Karl Marx makes the claim that all moral views are inherently and only consequences of our economic relationships to each other of our of our physical it's it's essentially the ultimate claim for nature right versus sorry for that's not really the same thing. It's I the ultimate claim of non-objectivity. Right. Everything is simply, everything I believe depends on where and when I was born and how rich I am and that kind of stuff. Right. And 
Nietzsche with his nihilism or, or Freud with his everything is sexual. These are all different ways of saying that morality has no objective meaning. And that's when you start to have conflict and we really do have to answer these questions. Right. And um, when they start, those, those are religious claims and they are perhaps natural to derive from something like you know, if evolution is just the consequence of random little particles acting in chaotic matter and what's meaningful about morality. And, and there is some merit to these views as well. Um, for example, in, in politics or religion, you see extreme concentration and people are largely the same as what their parents were. Right. Um, and, you know, like in America, Democrats live in cities and Republicans live in Outside rural areas. Yep. And, and if there was something... We all want to claim that there's something objectively true about either of these ideas, like Buddhism is objectively true, or Islam is objectively and exclusively true. Mm-hmm. But if if all people more or less have equal, and maybe they don't, but equal access to the discovery of truth and the ability to apprehend it, to recognize it, shouldn't we kind of see just like a random homogenous distribution of all religions everywhere, but that's not what we see. Right. How can I claim to be objective in my religious beliefs when I'm the same religion as my parents? Right. I've never been a different religion. Yeah. And how can I, you know, is it is it really fair for any Republican to say that their stance is objectively better when they've never been a mm-hmm. African-American living below the poverty line? Right. You know, so... There is a lot of merit to, I think, people like Marx, Nietzsche, Freud who want to undermine our objectivity. But again, I don't think we go to the opposite extreme. I think the truth is going to be in this difficult, painful um, balance, this, uh, what's the, there's a really good word here, the uncertainty, the ambiguity, the Mm. ambiguous balance. It's almost always where the real answers are. It is. And it's difficult. It's a wrestle. But... Uh, I, I wanted to say one more philosophy. Uh, you mentioned some wonderful moral philosophers who are very notable uh, philosophers. I'd say uh, an idea I'm very exposed to and that I'm very interested in today is a biological perspective of goodness, which is not only the flourishing of humanity, but the flourishing of life. And uh, one thing, I see it, it's new, uh, in, in a lot of degrees, the way that I'm thinking about it is new, and it's attractive because it's not controversial. And I, I say this because religion just carries a lot of baggage, you know? And you can see what evils have been done in the name of religion. And you can see lots of good things that have been done in the name of religion. But it's divisive, and in a, in a culture wherein your associations and subscriptions to moral philosophies can exclude you from social circles, from other opportunities, and this is something that's happened throughout all time in history and I think it's a poor practice and always has been to exclude people because of a specific moral philosophy uh, from participation in a community um, but it's it's attractive because it hasn't accumulated this baggage of being divisive and being problematic and excluding the rights of certain groups and so, so, some things mm-hmm. like that and that's why it's hard to be a, to subscribe to a religious moral philosophy right now in the kind of world that we live in, and it's difficult, and it requires faith. You have to say, I just don't know everything about not just the theology, but I don't know how this scientific belief that I subscribe to uh, is 
properly aligned with this religious idea that I subscribe to. Mm -hmm. And it's in that furnace of affliction and faith that I just have these wonderful feelings sometimes. And I listen to this beautiful, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's no way this can be true because this is happening. And then I listen to Silent Night for a Christmas Carol. And I'm like, well, it's all true. I knew it the whole time, you know? So I have so many things going on in my mind. I'm a really complex being just like everybody else. And I, I just wanted to say, though, that evolutionary theories and biology, the, you know, a morality of biology is, is a thing that's existing. Uh, and I ultimately think it steps out of biology uh, into something else. But I, I just wanted to point out that's why I think it's attractive. Mm -hmm. And it just hasn't accumulated the baggage. It's new. It seems like it's for the good of everybody. It really puts everybody as equals. And I don't necessarily think that's true either. Uh, in fact, biology is ruthless. <laughs> yeah, I love what you were describing about the the, the furnace of, of you know affliction, of intellectual ambiguity mm -hmm. and uncertainty. The cognitive and, dissonance. Yes, cognitive. My double wrestle think, with God. Right, double think. Double think. Yeah. The, I, I love 1984. Um, there's a really fantastic book. Um, by Bruce and Marie Hafen. Um, it's called Faith is Not Blind, and they also have a website by the same name with, with interesting yeah, stories. Yeah, I've heard of this. Um, but they kind of talk about this three-stage model. I'm not going to go too deep into this, but it's kind of moving from simple faith or blind faith to this uncertainty, ambiguity, faith crisis, existential questions kind of thing. And then beyond to the informed faith, to the mm -hmm. faith who sees and overcomes her enemy, as they put it, who is aware of the challenges and is no longer perhaps this extremely frustrating, overly optimistic person who thinks everything is just all right. No, there are a lot of right. problems in the world and who thinks that everything in the scriptures is, is easy and obvious and it's all natural. And, and maybe that's, that's kind of what the conversion, conversion experience is like. And both for those who have been religious for a long time and for those who are irreligious, those can be a very frustrating group of people right. those who are in this kind of blind faith stage. And, but I don't think anybody is meant to remain in that stage. I don't think ultimately it's as good to be in kind of a, a blind, reliant, as opposed to a self-reliant, confident faith stage where faith is built on personal wrestles and personal experiences. Um, G.K. Chesterton, they have this, I can't find the quote now, but I basically remember it in this book, says, I wouldn't give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Mm -hmm. the, the, the balance that you arrive at after battling with these questions. Um, Beautiful. <laughs> I think that's a great uh, summation. I'm going to give a closing a uh, few thoughts, and then you can give your closing few mm -hmm. thoughts. Um, this is a quote from Hugh Nibley in Not to Worry. He says, This is the terror, to have emerged from nothing, to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life, and self-expression. And with all this yet to die, it seems like a hoax. Mm. And so that's, that is uh, beautiful. I think it's beautiful. And... Uh, it also is a kind of absurd, I think. And I find a lot of ridiculousness in my faith, which might be uh, uncomfortable <laughs> for people to uh, 
I think it might be hard for some people to understand. It makes a lot of sense to me. I think sometimes I make a leap of faith and I go, oh my gosh, I'm ridiculous. This whole thing is ridiculous. This whole fact, just like this thought, I can't believe I'm this conscious being and I have all these real feelings and I'm really struggling. Like, can you believe I'm a humanoid figure? I have these hands, I have eyelashes, I can touch things and see things and I'm on a rock floating in space in the (laughs) middle of absolute nowhere and it's real, I'm actually conscious. And I'm studying my biology, but I hardly can scratch the surface of what the heck is, is tr- you know, what's making me me, you know? But the truth is, I am a me. And what I, th- the ultimate conclusion here is not to, uh, is to me saying, it's scratching, it's scratching my itch of a separate reality that exists beyond this, that I think everyone encounters. I think, I think children beautifully encounter this truth, uh, a morality. Uh, and you could argue that morality is fueled by uh, your evolutionary biology, you know, that's informed you today of what moral decisions allow you to reproduce and survive with the highest fitness. And I think there's other philosophies that say you got to rise above, create your own moral system, instill your own, be an existentialist, you know, create your existence, model your identity, become who you are. Uh, and there's various religious philosophies that say find peace and harmony, live the simplest life possible and want nothing and you will never suffer. Uh, and other ones that say embrace your suffering, there is a greater tomorrow and there's a savior and there's a redemption and don't worry about the fall, continue to improve yourself. And then there's stoicism. I could go on and on. Uh, that's the whole point of this podcast is to explore these ideas and really see what they have to say. But there is a reality that I feel, just like Hugh Nibley expresses, I'm in an absurd reality right now. It is absolutely insane. It's really happening to me. And I, I have chosen for my, in my life to this point to choose to believe in a divine source who I call God. And I'm still exploring his nature constantly. And I'm trying to refine my connection with him. And it works for me a lot of the time to do what he says. And sometimes it doesn't. And I still don't really know why. And I happen to believe in some things that I also think are ridiculous at the same time. I say with a straight face, I mean, I've, I've testified that Jesus has been resurrected with the most sincere emotions in my heart, you know? And I have really said that. And at the same time, I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I really believe this, that this thing that's impossible really happened, but it's coming out of my mouth and it feels really nice. And I get warm feelings and people around me are crying, you know? So I'm touching some reality. I don't know if it's the one that I observe most of the time, mm-hmm. but it sure is a reality, or it wouldn't be having this effect. Right. And, you know, people, you know, just learn to laugh at the incongruity of it. Learn mm-hmm. to laugh at yourself. You'll live longer, you yeah. know? Like, there, I, I have the same kind of experiences where, like, in, there are weird things in every religion that are just unique and cultural and really just weird and I find myself in these situations sometimes where I'm just like, anybody anywhere else in the world would just like laugh their eyes out at the mm-hmm. at this situation, you know, like, um, like the number of meetings, we, things we do on Sunday is just astounding. Um, and we, yeah, I was seven thirty to one thirty today. Right, I never left. But um, I'm gonna wrap up with a couple disparate ideas here, kind of little strings I didn't get to pull on. Um, First of all, I like this idea of this, like, uh, you know, approaching another reality, like scratching this existential itch that we have inside of us. And, and there's a really great C.S. Lewis quote about it, about this, just for 
consideration. He says, uh, this is in mere Christianity. He says, a baby feels hunger while there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Mm. And so the fact that we, that, that man searches for meaning, that man searches for religious ultimate objective truth, doesn't mean we're always successful in finding it, but it does perhaps suggest that there is something out there. Or at least it, it's reason to think seriously about the idea that there is something out there that we have this innate yearning to find. So that's one idea. Um, random thing about this idea of, uh, of eventually science and religion and everything coming into this beautiful, coherent unity. Mm-hmm. I think that we have some patterns of that in science itself. For example, current models of the progression of um, matter and the universe in the, in the early, we're talking like trillions of seconds after the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. People you know, are trying to take it back as far as possible and then of course you reach the singularity beyond which you cannot go right. which is where god is or isn't either way you really can't science well, can't science can't plan. answer that question but the current models suggest that these laws that we have these uh, the fundamental forces of of the universe you know electromagnetism gravity strong and weak forces that as you get back to higher and higher concentration and density and heat in these early microseconds of the universe, they actually, you have what's called the um, electroweak force. And, and they become indistinguishable from each other. And then, I can't remember the order, I think, and then it's gravity unifies with them, and then ultimately the strong force. And so as you get to these extreme conditions, um, just the fact that these things become unified and indistinguishable, I think, is kind of beautiful. Mm. And then... Finally, to tie back to the paper, I wanted to read one last thing from from Calibro, which is maybe the lesson from this paper. He says, Often foundational religious narratives like the Genesis account become mythological precedents for rituals, adding authority to the ritual by showing that it had a powerful and an ancient origin. Note that the term mythological here does not mean that the account is fictional. So we're not trying to say the scriptures are not true in any way. We're trying to take a different approach to what does it mean for them to be true. And I think it becomes a more, when we arrive at truth, it's more meaningful. It, it teaches us what we're intended to learn. Like, why does Christ care what I think about, like, the order of the creation of the earth or how right. old the earth is? Why does, why does any of that matter? But if I get to the heart of the matter and understand him as the creator and as the redeemer and as my brother, and if I understand if I look at Genesis as trying to teach me important moral lessons, then maybe I'll start looking for those lessons instead of constantly worrying about these scientific inconsistencies. So that this is a, is a historical and until recent dominant approach is that these things are they're intended to teach. They're precedents for rituals. They add authority to, you know, the 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 order of creation we see this parallelism between days one and four with light and darkness, and then two and five with uh, waters and, and um, oh, I'm forgetting now. Anyways, there's a 
parallelism between 1 and 4 and then 2 and 5 and then 3 and 6. And then we have this beautiful culmination in day 7. And it's intended to, to intensify our understanding of the importance of the Sabbath and, and to guide our ritual observance of the Sabbath. And it's just a totally different approach to the meaning and the, and the intent and the purpose of the scriptures. So something um, worth thinking about deeply and, and frequently. Amen. <laughs> well, that's, that's our thoughts. And thanks for listening to the TMI podcast.